in the short term, depending on what your outlook is over the next, call it six to 12 months, you know, if inflation is a concern, let's look at dividends. If growth is what you're looking for, let's look at quality. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Markets remained uneasy this week as investors looked for greater certainty around near-term economic growth. Will the reopening trade continue, or has the market cycle finally turned? In today's episode, Chris McKaney, Matt Montemuro, and your host Mark Rays discuss multiple factor-based ETFs that investors can use to implement their perspective on the near term, while also discussing some longer-term opportunities as well. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Hello, and welcome to our BMO ETFs weekly insight call with our team of experts. I'm your host, Mark Race, head of product for BMO GAM. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. We really appreciate you listening in. We're joined today by Chris McKinney and Matt Montemiro, both portfolio managers on our ETF desk. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. Good morning, Mark. Thanks. Good morning. Great to have you both. Let's get right into some questions. With markets at a nervous point right now, certainly having sold off around inflation concerns and, of course, uh, some of the news that's been coming out of China, it's a good time to think about defensive factors. For advisors that like to use factor investing, let's use the U.S. market. How would you position between defensive factors of low volatility, dividends, and quality? We naturally think of low volatility with our ZLU. But are there reasons to be thinking about dividends with ZDY or even quality with ZUQ? Thanks. Sure. And I think, you know, maybe what we can do first here is map out, you know, where each of these factors fall on the risk spectrum, right, relative to the broad markets. And, you know, if you use the S&P 500 as your starting point or ZFP is is our ETF that, that tracks the S&P 500, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a portfolio that's going to give you, let's call it market risk, okay? So you're, you're tracking that, that broad index um, and whatever volatility comes out of the market, that's what you get with ZSP. Let's call that market risk. And then from there, if you want one tick down um, on the risk spectrum, and when I'm talking about risk, um, I'm generally talking about volatility of the portfolio. And again, this is over a, a longer term time horizon. Um, we'll see quality being sort of one tick down. ZUQ is the ETF we're talking about here. That quality factor is one tick down on the risk spectrum from the broad market. Um, and you know, if you think about the type of stocks um, that are chosen for that that portfolio, um, that it really makes sense that it is just a little bit less risky. Um, you know, there's nothing special about these stocks, but the things that we screen for, like earnings consistency and, and low debt to equity. Um, you know, that'll lead to companies that, you know, might not have as many earnings surprises, for example, on earnings day. And so won't have those as many extreme moves uh, up and down when there's earnings surprises or, or things like that, that you might get in other sectors of, of the market. Um, so, again, just maybe one tick down on the risk spectrum from from the broad market. 
take that one step further and go a little bit further down the risk spectrum. And then you get to div the dividend factor or ZDY um, in this case. And what you're getting there generally with companies that are paying and growing dividends over time, you know, they're not reinvesting as much back into their own businesses and, and so don't have as much huge upside growth potential as maybe some of those other stocks and in, in, in other parts of the market have. Um, and so, you know, again, you're getting companies that typically have growth potential, just not as much as the broad market. Again, um, the other thing working in the favor of dividends is that they are paying those dividends. And so that tends to put almost a little bit of a floor um, underneath these stocks as well. So when you get a market sell-off, um, you know, unless there's concern, a broad concern around most of these companies, you know, having to cut or miss their dividends, they're only going to sell off so much because that yield, um, that dividend yield, of course, gets higher and higher the more those stocks sell off and creates a nice, really, uh, cushion for how far those stocks can can go can go down in a, in a market sell off. So, uh, again, one step less on that risk spectrum that we're talking about. And then, of course, at, at the lower end of that risk spectrum is low volatility stocks or ZLU um, when we're talking about the U.S. market for our ETF. Um, and again, this is really just invested in equities that really just don't move as much as the broad market. And that leads to certain sectors like, you know, a nice overweight to utilities or to the consumer areas, the consumer stocks, um, consumer staples. You know, think about things that are a bit more recession proof that, um, you know, investors need or consumers need day in and day out. Um, again, not too much growth potential there, but again, something that you can rely on um, through all market environments. And so, again, over the long term, that's sort of the risk spectrum that you can you can think about with these factors. Um, but of course, in the in any short term period, they each have their own unique drivers, you know, because of those sector tilts and those factor tilts, um, they each have their own unique drivers that can drive performance over the short term. Um, and so, you know, even though we're talking about defensive factors, any one of these can either outperform or underperform um, within a given short term time frame. And the quality factor is actually a good example of that. You know, we've seen with this recent market sell off. Um, that quality actually has sold off more than, than some of these other factors. And that's largely just because of, again, where it's invested. You know, there's a big overweight into the technology sector um, with ZUQ. And so those are the, you know, that's the sector and those are the companies that led growth coming into the fall and so kind of outperformed on the upside, um, but is now giving back a little bit more uh, in this sell-off that we've seen, you know, kind of since the end of August. Um, you know, the quality factor is giving a little bit of that back. And so, again, keep in mind some of these unique drivers in terms of your short-term positioning. Um, you know, if we think about going forward where we want to be, it'll depend on what your outlook is. So, you know, if you are concerned about inflation persisting and being, being much higher for longer um, than what we've seen, you know, that could lead to potentially higher interest rates. If we look at the low volatility portfolio, there is an element of interest rate sensitivity in there. Again, we're very overweight utilities and some of those consumer stocks. So the more interest rate sensitive type equities. So if you were concerned about rising interest rates, um, you know, going much higher, you know, maybe the low vol factor in that low vol portfolio might not be exactly where you want to be positioned. You might want to take a look at dividends that still have some of that interest rate sensitivity, but again, have that, that dividend um, under, underneath them to, to kind of support them. And so not as interest rate sensitive. 
Um, if you're thinking more about inflation being transitory um, and, you know, what has been working will continue to work going forward, maybe you do want to look at that quality factor. That's going to give you the most growth potential going forward. Again, you know, even though it's a little less um, on the risk spectrum versus the broad market, there is a, a, a decent amount of growth potential in there. Again, overweight that IT sector that has been that growth engine over the last few years. Um, you know, if you think we're kind of just in a short term, um, you know, malaise here, so to speak, and, and that, again, what has been working will continue to work going forward, that quality factor and that ZUQ is probably where you want to be. Um, and then, you know, kind of referencing dividends previously, that really falls in between, you know, that low vol and the quality factor. You get some growth, you get some low vol. It's kind of a nice in-between sort of um, exposure there. So, um, you know, for someone that, that wants to collect, of course, someone that wants to collect income as well, um, you might want to tilt towards those dividend paying equities, those that are giving off a little bit more income than what you're getting in, in other areas of the market. So, again, over the long term, um, we laid out where each of those fall on the risk spectrum. And so depending on your risk tolerance, those are the factors you want to tilt to. Um, and then again, in the short term, depending on what your outlook is over the next call it six to 12 months, um, you know, if inflation is a concern, you know, let's let's look at dividends. If uh, growth is, is what you're looking for, let's let's look at quality. Um, and then, of course, if you're more concerned just with risk overall uh, valuations and think market has much lower to go, not necessarily on inflation, but just in general, um, you know, the low vol factor and ZLU is, is where you would want to be. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Now, continuing on the conversation that you've been pointing us towards, if, if you think this is just a short-term blip. So if we were to take the growth side of the equation and talk about long-term growth using our innovation suite uh, led by ZINN, um, would we consider this sell-off as a possible entry point? As well, how has ZINN performed since we brought it to market? You know, when I sit here and think of the sort of explosive growth potential of disruptive innovation, you know, should we really be fixating on the short term and concerns, let's say, around the yield curve or inflation, or be more accepting of riding it out as the growth lead of your portfolio? Thanks. Yeah, I can grab this one, Mark. And, you know, looking at ZINN, that was launched in January of this year, so 2021, you know, performance so far has basically been flat on the year. You know, we've seen quite a few peaks and valleys as, you know, it, it's been quite the year for the market as a whole and, and tech specifically has gone on quite, quite, quite the ride. You know, just looking at, as you mentioned, since the start of Q4, so, you know, we're, we're about two, two weeks in now. We've seen uh, ZIMM lag the S&P, uh, which could prove to be a decent entry point, uh, you know, given the long-term nature of this product and, and the just the thematic um, essence of, of the disruptive technology that you, you, bring, you bring up. You know, overall, I think ZIMM should be looked at as a long-term growth and thematic play. You know, it's not something that really should change quarter over quarter. You know, that investment thesis um, should be strong over the next, you know, two, five, ten years. As what, what we're really doing here is we're looking for companies that focus on and are, and are at the forefront of innovation. So, you know, we, we view these companies that will be, you know, we, we expect them to have strong returns over the next five, ten 15 years 
as the world starts to adopt what we call today, you know, disruptive innovation as the new new normal. And you know, I I view this as a way to get in on the ground floor to take advantage of of these new disruptive technologies before they basically become mainstream. From a performance perspective, just looking at Q3, um, you know, the performance was led by next generation internet companies. So notably those exposed to cloud computing. You know, many companies who have been investing in, in cloud capabilities benefited from, from this theme in Q3, you know, going from the mega cap names like Amazon to some of the more smaller pure play names. And that's where I think, that, you know, ZINN is a great way to, you know, a- avoid some of that idiosyncratic risk by, you know, picking the winner. But in, in, instead, what you're doing is actually picking the theme and picking, uh, you know, saying, look, I think innovation and these disruptive technologies are going to make a change, you know, in the global economy over the long term. I can't necessarily pick, you know, company A versus company B, but but by getting exposure to ZINN, what you're really doing is investing in that theme over the long term. Um, you know, the, I think the growing migration, specifically looking at cloud computing, you know, I think you look at the growing migration from businesses um, to the public cloud, which has been driven by working from home, con- contactless uh, customer interact- interactions, demand from the business to business connectivity. Businesses will start to migrate from in-house infrastructure, in-house technology, which was kind of the, the norm uh, in the past and still is probably the norm right now to more third-party platforms. You know, I think if you look at total spending in public cloud computing in 2020, it was about $317 billion. But if you look at forecasts going forward, uh, many forecasts see that going up and above $800 billion in 2025. So this would be a way to invest in that growth, in that increased demand, without having to pick a specific company or invest in an early stage, you know, let's call it startup or, in, or early stage company. So companies that expose to this mega trend will see a huge influx of demand. And this ETF is an excellent way to, to get exposure to those. So I, I do like to provide an example of, of a specific holding where, you know, by buying ZINN, you're getting exposure to, to a company called Bill.com. This is one of the top contributors of performance over Q3. So Bill.com uses an advanced AI platform to automate the payment process for businesses, basically eliminating you know, redundant data entry and human error. You know, this unique software exposes Bill.com to, to three innovative platforms and megatrends. Um, you know, next-gen internet via its cloud computing um, base, FinTech through o- online payments, and autonomous technology through machine learning. You know, I think this is an interesting company because it's showing how uh, some of these megatrends are and innovations are converging in real time and they're really becoming the new norm in the business and that's a, it's a perfect representation of why you want to look at something like ZINN now and get in on the ground floor. The company posted uh, stellar earning, uh, earnings and updated its annual revenue forecast giving it about a 46% return in Q3. They keep one of the top performers in ZINN and then also in ZAUT, which is the Autonomous Technology ETF, ZINT, Next Gen Internet ETF, and ZFIN, so our FinTech ETF. You know, I think these are the type of innovative companies that you want to invest in from the ground floor and take advantage of their rise in relevance in, in the global economy. 
you know, short-term deviations as, as, as Chris had gone through in detail in the last question, you know, it, it's, I think they should be kind of overlooked and ignored in a way because ZINM should be considered within the long-term investment within the growth sleeve of your portfolio. You know, overall, these megatrends are not going to change quarter over quarter. You know, if you believe in this megatrend now, you're saying that I think this is going to have an impact on the global economy for years to come. And that's why you want to get in today to get exposure to that growth and that disruptive technology as it becomes more normalized. So overall, I believe that the, these megatrends and this, this specific ZINN is an excellent way to get exposure to you know, this long-term growth uh, driver in the economy. And it can be a, an excellent building block for the growth speed of your portfolio for years to come. Right. Thanks for that, Matt. And, you know, as, as you certainly point out, looking more long-term here, you know, certainly opportunity to buy on the dips and build up um, a position as, as the market kind of creates that opportunities for us. You are listening to Views from the Desk, a weekly edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying today's discussion, we encourage you to check out our deep dive episodes where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM's product suite. Check out episode 83 in the same podcast series where Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets, introduces his new U.S. all-cap strategy. This exciting new ETF, ticker ZACE, ZACE, helps you invest across all market cap exposures to capture growth in companies both big and small. Now let's turn to bonds, where advisors have been asking about the expectation for high-yield bonds. Balancing off the strong recent returns um, since the market correction with, you know, the awareness of narrowing spreads. So using ZJK or ZHYR hedge version, what's your expectation for 2022 for this asset class? And as well, how would you position it within the fixed income uh, portion of your portfolio? Thanks. I can take this one as well, Mark. No, high yield has been one of the best performing segments of the market since basically the crash in March 2020. You know, historically low rates have allowed issuers to refinance. You know, investors have been you know, starving for yield, so they have been pouring into the asset class. Uh, you know, the Fed has has been accommodative with its uh, bond buying program. All have been tailwinds for for the high yield asset class. You know, we've seen steady spread tightening because of this for basically almost 18 months now, which has led to very, very strong performance um, during basically the, the COVID uh, pandemic. You know, looking right now, actually, defaults, uh, default rates are uh, now below pre-COVID levels, which is, which is quite astonishing to, to um, see. Um, so but all, all those things have led to a very strong uh, uh, environment for high-yield credit. You know, that being said, you know, we did see some weakness in September. You know, September was a, uh, was a rough month. We saw some steepening in the yield curve. Uh, the Fed's indication that tapering would begin uh, likely in November. You know, those are all headwinds um, for high yield. And high yield did have its worst month of the year. Um, you know, from those headwinds that we mentioned, increased supply as issuers, you know, try to tap the market for the last time before, you know, they, they view rates potentially going up and or, you know, that, that threat or the, the actuality of tapering bringing volatility to the market. So we did see a little bit of weakness in September. 
Uh, we saw spreads widen about 22 basis points over the month. Um, but from a risk-adjusted basis, uh, high yield still outperformed investment grade, which is which is actually quite telling how, how resilient high yield spreads have been throughout the, this entire crisis. Um, you know, if you look at spread absolute spread levels now, they do look in line with uh, kind of historical averages of the last five years. Uh, they are a little bit wider than kind of we saw pre-COVID and during COVID. So it actually might, you know, it, it, it seems to be at a sustainable level right now at about 315 on the high-yield CDX, 315 basis points. You know, looking forward, uh, I do view tapering and rising rates. Um, I think they both present headwinds that could plague high-yield in the near term. You know, I would be concerned about high-yield credit weakness uh, in the short term because of that. So when you know if if I'm looking at high yield right now, I personally would favor ZSH, so our floating rate high yield, versus ZJK or ZHY, which is our cash bond or, or traditional bond uh, high yield uh, exposure, just in the near term to neutralize the impact um, of rising rates. You know, I think credit spreads could be volatile again in in the short term, but you know I think if you're looking longer term. I still view high yield credit as, as prudent within a, in a portfolio context. High yield provides uh, a yield enhancement, and you know, even though we're, we expect yields uh, rates to rise, we're still in a very low absolute yield environment, a yield starved environment. So, you know, that that yield premium that high yield provides is definitely beneficial from a portfolio context. As well, high yield does provide significant diversification benefits at a portfolio level. The correlation between high yield and a traditional Canadian universe, let's call it ZAG, is about 0.3. So, you know, when you're looking at that and you're looking at it from a portfolio context, you know, and you're looking ahead to a, a potential period of increased volatility, high yield provides extra stabilization benefits from a portfolio perspective. You know, also, you know, looking longer term, um, you know, default rates, I think some people might be concerned that default rates are now lower than pre-COVID levels. However, I, I look at it and say, well, high yield issuers have tapped the market at record rates. Basically, the biggest, it's been the biggest 18 months of high yield issuance uh, to date. Um, but that has likely given high yield issuers and high yield companies time because they've already locked in financing at those low rates. And they're not going to necessarily be up against it for a couple of years before they have to refinance again. So that does give them some time, some wiggle room to, to work through potential volatility in the markets because they're not going to have to necessarily uh, immediately getting a cash crunch to, to, to run to the markets to raise more cash. So that should uh, provide some added stability to, to the high yield market, which is quite, uh, quite promising. You know, Overall, I, I still do think that high yield has a place within a well-diversified fixed income portfolio. Uh, you know, that being said, if I was an owner of ZHY or ZJK, you know, and I wanted to protect myself from some short-term deviations, I would potentially look at ZSH as a substitute to navigate some of that rising rate risk, to, to neutralize some of that rising rate risk while still getting that, that high yield exposure and that, that high yield correlation um, low higher correlations the rest of my portfolio. So, you know, those are some things that, that I would look at from high yield. I think longer term, I think high yield is in a quite um, constructive place right now because of, uh, because of uh, how much of the universe has already raised capital. 
Um, at the same time, I think looking, you know, if you want to navigate some short-term deviations, I think ZFH is, a, is an excellent substitute to, to remove that, that rising rate risk uh, and play it in your portfolio. But overall, I think high yield has been quite uh, an outperformer. I think short-term, you could see some weakness, but overall, I still think it has a place within, within a well-diversified fixed income portfolio. Great. Thanks for that, Matt. And I think one of the key points you hit on there was the good place that high yield is in relative to uh, refinancing risk, as, as you say. A whole bunch of issuance coming out at, uh, of course, extremely low rates. So that puts it in a good spot for the next couple of years. So you, know, you got to think about uh, you know, any spread widening relative to any market choppiness. Uh, but I think high yield certainly has a place in the portfolio right now. Got one more for you, gentlemen. Uh, want to come back to Canadian banks, where we've seen a spike in advisor interest in ZEB since we lowered the management fee to 25 basis points back in the late summer. Can you comment on the runway for Canadian banks, how they might benefit from the steepening or rising yield curve? Uh, and as well, is that expectation already priced in the market? As a bonus, is there a dividend story here that should appeal to uh, advisors? Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And yeah, certainly we have seen a spike in interest in, in this fund since we uh, announced that management fee cut, um, you know, call it a month and a half ago. Uh, you know, this fund has seen over $130 million of net new flows just since we made that announcement. Um, so yeah, certainly a lot of interest in this sector and, and, and in the Canadian banks. Some of that might be fee-driven specifically, but I think a lot of it is really just um, where Canadian banks are and, and, and where they're set up right now going forward. Um, I think in a really a really good place um, as an investment. You know, I, I think first of all, you know, going back to the last um, earnings announcements from the Canadian banks, I think that really gave investors, you know, confidence that. Um, you know, the worst of the pandemic is behind us, you know, from, a, from an economy point of view, from a Canadian bank and lending point of view. Um, you know, we saw the banks really reduce um, their reserves for, for, for bad loans um, significantly um, and, and, and really let us know that, you know, the worst case scenario that, that they were bracing for really didn't happen. Um, and now that we're in this sort of re, regrowth and expansion phase, um, you know, that that worst really is behind us. Are there sectors that are still at risk? Of course there are. Um, and, you know, certain loans, uh, certain parts of the loan book are, are, are obviously still at risk, depending on the unevenness of, uh, of the reopening and economic growth going forward. Um, but certainly, again, I think, you know, um, the worst uh, of, of pandemic-related shutdowns uh, being behind us, at least from a, a lending point of view, the, w- the way the banks are looking at it. Um, and so, you know, that gives investors comfort, of course. Um, you mentioned the steepening yield curve. And so, you know, we've seen um, in Canada over the last, again, call it a month and a half or so, we've seen that yield curve steepen about 40 basis points, you know, from the very short end up through that 10-year um, sort of maturity range. And as you mentioned, that steep yield curve really does help the banks and their and their lending books. You know, that's a part of how, how they make their money is, the, the margin on interest rates. So, um, you know, borrowing in the short-term markets at lower rates and then lending out to consumers uh, and, and borrowers um, over the longer term, you know, of course, mortgages are a big part of that, but all loans, you know, five years plus tends to be where um, the majority of lending happens. 
Um, and so, again, the steeper the yield curve is, um, it just allows more room uh, for the banks to, A, you know, put in a little bit more extra margin in there. And then, again, also um, borrow a bit more from the shorter term in order to lend from the long term and, and capture that, that difference. So steeper yield curves, I, I think, definitely good for Canadian banks. Um, you know, is that priced into the market right now? I'm, I'm not sure it's fully priced in. You know, if you look at valuations in Canadian banks, they're pretty average right now. So, um, you know, certainly not at a discount, but definitely not overpriced at all either. Um, so I think, you know, you're, you're kind of at a, a neutral uh, place in terms of valuation uh, of, of banks. And so I think, again, looking forward at potential for increased steepening, and if not steepening, at least increased uh, yield curve overall. You know, I think, again, just an absolute um, level of higher yields helps the Canadian banks as well. Um, you know, again, that just allows a bit more room for, for adding in their margin into their lending books. So, uh, um, you know, as interest rates do continue to increase, we think that benefits the Canadian banks. Of course, if they are increase, if rates are increasing, that generally um, is indicative of a strong economy and overall banks will benefit um, from strong economic activity. Um, and then the last part of that question, you know, the dividend story, as you say, you know, a, a very good dividend yield coming out of the sector. You know, we're currently at about 3.6% dividend yield um, on the Canadian banks. And of course, that's tax preferred. Those are Canadian dividends. So that's a tax efficient type of yield um, that income oriented investors would be getting. Um, but also, you know, banks haven't been able to raise their dividends yet. The, the, the regulators still... Um, holding back um, the go-ahead to either increase dividends or, 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 or share buyback programs. And so as we expect that to happen in the, in the coming months, you know, th those restrictions coming off, um, you know, that could lead to potentially significant uh, dividend increases from, from a couple of the Canadian banks, at least, and, um, you know, potentially across the board, um, seeing some level of dividend increases coming, coming out of that sector. And so, again, for income-oriented investors, that are already getting a 3.6% dividend yield, um, you know, the um, uh, possibility of, of that going up over time in the coming months as those restrictions come off from the regulator, um, you know, further increases the attractiveness of this sector. And so I think, um, you know, you could see that dividend yield start to creep back up to 4% and you're still getting the growth element, um, again, from that improving economy and from that steepening yield curve. So a lot to like in the Canadian banking space right now. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Certainly a lot of momentum in this space. And when you combine that with our fee reduction to a management fee of 25 basis points, uh, certainly a very compelling reason for advisors to look at uh, ZEB. So with that, we've covered off the questions that have come in this week. So I want to thank everyone for listening in. Of course, I want to thank both Matt and Chris for your great answers. Really insightful, covering a lot of ground. Uh, giving us lots of things to take back to our own conversations today and for the rest of the week. So with that, I want to thank everyone one last time and have a great day. Thank you to Mark Rays, Chris McKaney, and Matt Montemuro for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about multiple styles of investing from low volatility to quality to dividends, which can be implemented into any and all of your client portfolios using ETFs. Our experts also discussed ZINN, an innovation-focused ETF which provides exposure to the companies that are building tomorrow, today. For more information about the other ETFs discussed in this podcast, 
Check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.